Would you pray with me? Father of glory, I ask, we ask that this morning you would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. Give us the knowledge of you this morning, our God of grace. Give us revelation of your immeasurable riches of grace this morning that we would see with the eyes of our hearts the hope that we have, the glorious inheritance that we have and the great power of your grace, the great power of Jesus Christ in saving us. Open the eyes of our hearts to see that we would praise you, that we would praise your glorious grace this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we come this morning to what is, in my opinion, one of the greatest passages in the whole of Scripture. For in its truths, we see four of the five solas. We see grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. We also see the biblical truths of radical corruption, unconditional election, effectual grace, and the preservation of the saints. But most of all, we see the simplicity and grandeur of the grace of God in the gospel. This is encapsulated in these precious words this morning, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. As I was preparing this message, I thought of several other potential titles. Grace Alone, From Death to Life, I'm Alive, But, just but, because that's a great word in itself. You were, but now you are. I obviously ended up with, but God, because, well, how couldn't I? I mean, you hear me quote it all the time. I, I love these words. I think they're the greatest two words ever uttered. And I hope by the end of this message, you will understand why. With that being said, I really seriously considered the title, The Immeasurable Riches of His Grace, or at least as a subtitle, like the Puritans who explained their entire sermon in the title. I seriously considered it because but God is a declaration of the immeasurable riches of God's grace. These words come from verse seven in this passage. It says, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things in this verse. First is the so that. It indicates a purpose statement. That is, whatever was stated before was so that what comes after so that God might show, might demonstrate to us the immeasurable riches of his grace. So this is the purpose of this passage, so that God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, and that we would see and seek and savor and sing the praises of, and stand firm in the immeasurable riches of his grace. The other thing I want you to see in this verse is the eloquent, extravagant language of Paul. He and I would have gotten along really well. He liked big words, so do I. He says, the immeasurable riches of God's grace. Immeasurable. The word is hyperbolo. Other translations translate it as exceeding, infinite, limitless, surpassing, incomparable. That is how Paul describes God's grace. 
infinite, exceeding, limitless, surpassing, incomparable is God's grace. This means that our minds cannot exhaust the depths of God's grace, which suggests that our meager ideas of grace can always be enlarged, always get bigger. Our diminished thoughts of God's graciousness can always be augmented. There is always more grace in God than we realize. And therefore, there is always more of his grace to be realized. Paul knows that our declaration, our appreciation, our adoration and glorification of God's grace will be proportionate to our knowledge and experience of it. The more we know of him, of who he is and what he has done, the more awe we have, the more grandeur, the more depth, the more transcendence and refulgence of God's grace we taste and understand, the greater our approbation of, our dependence upon and glorification of his grace becomes. And the more we will mean it when we declare with our mouths, like Paul, to the praise of his glorious grace. And so that is my objective this morning, that we would see, that we would grasp more fully, understand more deeply the immeasurable riches of his grace so that we seek and savor and sing the praises of and stand firm in those immeasurable riches. Now in verse 1, if you would turn with me, I didn't even say where we were. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. In verse 1, Paul begins his depiction of God's immeasurable grace for us, his readers, with a description of us, his readers. You see, the truer our apprehension of who we are and the condition that we were in, the more glorious our understanding of his work in our lives will be. In other words, the more we realize the depth from which we have been rescued, all the greater will our awe of the one who rescued us be. As I've heard Bill say many a time, we can't truly appreciate the light without the darkness. And so Paul begins with mankind in verses one through three. Humanity. Male and female, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, everyone from every ethnicity, from every tribe and tongue and nation, every descendant of Adam from beginning to the end of time. Air buddy, air buddy. He describes our inglorious condition in vivid detail. Verse one, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. This is perhaps one of the starkest depictions of humanity ever penned. And also one of the most accurate and realistic. We will spend a little bit of time here because Paul did. As I said, it helps us understand the gravity of the human condition, the truth of utter human depravity, and thereby the depths from which God has rescued us, thereby showing us the greatness of his grace. It starts out as grave as it possibly could. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. It's an interesting turn of phrase he uses. Dead people don't walk. What Paul is saying is that while all humans were physically living, they were spiritually dead as evidenced by and as a result of their sins. It takes us back to the Garden of Eden and the first humans, Adam and Eve. The Lord God commanded Adam saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. 
For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. But Adam disobeyed God and took the fruit and ate of it. And two consequences happened. Physical death entered creation. We say that Adam did not die instantaneously, but rather at that moment as mortality entered creation, his body began to deteriorate slowly, which would result in his eventual physical death. The second consequence was his spiritual death. Though his physical death was not instantaneous, his spiritual death was. At that moment, he became separated from God. He no longer had any spiritual life or light within him. He was a dead man walking. He could do nothing to merit God's favor, nothing to earn or attain spiritual life. As John Stott says, a life without God, however physically fit and mentally alert the person may be, is a living death. And that those who live it are dead even while they are living. All men were spiritually lifeless. So let me ask you, what can a dead person do to make themselves alive? This isn't mostly dead, as Miracle Max would have told us. This is dead, dead. Complete, utter spiritual inability. Dead as a doornail. That's a weird phrase, isn't it? Dead as a doornail. Let me ask you a question, though. What can a doornail do to make itself alive? Nothing. Good job. Because doornails can't do any living thing, can they? They have no life in them. Now, what can a lifeless person do to make themselves alive? Good. You guys are catching on. Well done. And what can spiritually lifeless people do to give themselves spiritual life? Thank you. Well done. Romans 5.12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So much for man is essentially good. No, man is completely dead. Natural man is dead in sin. Because of sin, sin in him and sin expressed outwardly. The rest of this section simply describes how we were dead. We were dead people doing dead things. A description of our lives. It's a description of our works. Walking in transgressions and sins. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived. In the passions of our flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. All of this is one big concept. We as the living dead did spiritually dead things through our bodies as sons of disobedience. We walked in the ways, imitated, partook of, and relished in the behaviors and customs and values of the godless world system that is ruled and established and directed by the prince of the power of the air, the devil. We were slaves, captive to our sinful, natural bodily desires and intellects. And these were our works. These were our works. He doesn't just stop there, though. He continues. And we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. This is a far cry from the assertion that all people are children of God. Children of wrath is a Semitic construction indicating people destined for judgment. Paul is telling his readers that everyone by nature, as spiritually dead people, deserves God's wrath. That is what justice cries out for. Wrath, the terrible, holy, awful, righteous, severe, just, and glorious wrath of God. Children of wrath, it says in Revelation, will drink the wine of God's wrath, 
poured out full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they will have no rest day or night. This was the plight of mankind. They were truly, utterly, spiritually dead, radically corrupt, totally depraved sons of perdition. And that was our state. That was who we were. That was our plight. But God. Amen. But God. Can I get a bigger amen? Amen. But God. But nevertheless, notwithstanding, in spite of all of this, God. You were in a miserable state, but God. You were dead, but God. You followed the world, but God. You were a slave to the devil, but God. You were a child of wrath, but guess what? God. Woohoo! Paul transitions from us to God. Here were you and your actions and the results of those actions, and now here is God and God's actions and the results of his actions. That is what the rest of this passage is about, who God is and what God has done. This is the contrast that Paul is bringing to us. Us in our power and God in his. What we deserve and what God gives. Paul was not attempting to make us feel bad in what he had just written but was helping us to grasp more fully fully the greatness of his work of grace, of his salvation. From death to life, from bondage to freedom, from hell to heaven, that they may know the greatness of your power toward them in Christ. That's what he just prayed. That we may know the greatness of his power toward us, toward us, toward us in Christ. But God, being rich in mercy. There's that rich word again. It's come up several times already, and we're only at the beginning of chapter 2. It indicates that a person possesses a superlative amount or degree of something. In this case, it's mercy. Abundant in mercy. God having a plentiful, copious, bounteous amount of mercy. And he's introducing this as a contrast to what? To justice. To what we deserve. To what he just talked about. Judgment in wrath is the act of justice. We deserve while grace and mercy are the act of non-justice, acts of kindness in place of, just, of justice. Paul is about to explain how God has been rich in mercy. But first he gives the cause behind the Lord's exercise of that mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Get that. Because the Lord loved his people, those he had chosen from eternity past, even though they were dead in sins, even though they followed the course of the world and the devil and were by nature children of wrath, he still loved them. What? And he doesn't just say love. Paul continues with his effusive language. The great love with which he loved us. 
That love for us was great, was enormous, was immense. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. Rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Mm. And it would have to be that great, wouldn't it? Given what we were just told about ourselves. I have loved you with an everlasting love. He says in Jeremiah. First John, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. Now that is love. Despite everything Paul just showed us to be like, God loved us so abundantly, so deeply, so passionately that he had mercy on us by sending his son to be a propitiation, to be a sacrifice in our place on a cross that we would live through him. Hallelujah! But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Though we were dead, he made us alive. (laughs) We have been taken from condemnation to salvation through his mercy from eternal unending death to eternal everlasting life. I'm alive. You're alive. I'm alive. I'm alive. I'm alive. I'm alive. I'm alive. I'm alive. He made us alive. But God made us alive in Christ. And there's, there's more. And he raised us up with him. And he seated us with him in heavenly places. But before Paul says this, he, say, he pauses to say, By grace you have been saved. Even though he will say this exact same thing again in the very next sentence, he is compelled to hear so as to emphasize that it is all by God's grace. This life, this salvation is by grace, y'all. This is about God's grace expressed through his mercy in his love. We are saved by grace alone. And then he says, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And raised us up with him. Jesus also secured our physical bodily resurrection, overturning the other effect of Adam's sin. At the resurrection, we will get new, immortal, imperishable bodies. And he seated us with him. Once we have our resurrected bodies with this spiritual life that he has given us, we will be seated with him. See? (laughs) Really? Seated with him in heaven. No longer children of wrath where we receive justice and hell, but by God's grace, because of his great love and the exercise of his mercy, we are enthroned in heaven with Jesus. Receiving the blessings and the outpouring of God's goodness and his light and his love. 
forever and ever because of God's immeasurable grace. Now I want you to know that this is a present truth for us that is awaiting its future consummation. It is a present truth for us now while we await its consummation. By faith in Christ, all of these spiritual blessings are ours already. But the full enjoyment of these blessings is not yet ours. The spiritual declaration and reality is that we are already raised. We are already seated with Christ while we await the resurrection of our physical bodies in heaven. It's done. It is done. It is purchased. It is sealed. Now we're just waiting. Come on. Let's go. Verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. There it is again. God's grace. As if it were not clear enough by his contrasting of our works and God's works. He makes sure that his readers get the point. Now this repeated emphasis is not altogether unfounded, is it? Because we, well... We naturally hate the idea of being completely dependent upon another, don't we? We hate it. We hate it. We want to be the captain of our soul, the masters of our fate. We want to be in control of our salvation and have the satisfaction of earning it ourselves. Bootstraps. Pull yourself up. And the mere mention of grace and faith removes that very idea. It removes earning or deserving anything. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, is an insult to the one who seeks to earn, merit, or purchase their salvation. Yet the person who insists on this clearly does not understand themselves nor God. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But if I do more good works than bad ones, won't I be accepted? No. No, you see, God is holy and righteous, and you must meet his requirements, the requirements of his innately holy and righteous nature. All right, so what's that? Perfection. Complete, utter perfection. Perfect obedience in thought, in word, in deed. One sin, one transgression, and you have failed to meet the requirements of God's holy nature. And so... Once you have sinned, no works can make up for the act of disobedience. Your dead works cannot impart life, like we just talked about. Further, if you are trying to amend, to make restitution for your wrongs, that in and of itself is an act of rebellion. Because God said it is through Him and through grace, through His grace alone. So me trying to make it up, oh, I got to make it up for you. You know, you making it up is just doing what you should have done in the first place, except now you're in disobedience because you're trying to make it up. You're digging a deeper grave every time you look to your own works for salvation or to try and to contribute to your salvation. William McDonald says, to, to seek to earn merit or purchase salvation is to insult the giver. He says, imagine yourself invited to a banquet in the White House by the President of the United States. I know a lot of you don't like the President of the United States. Just think back when there was a president that you did like. <laughs> you are seated at a table that is filled with the choicest foods. 
Every effort is made to give you a most enjoyable evening. At the end of the lovely visit, the president stands at the front door to bid you goodbye. What do you do? As you leave, do you press a dime into his hand and say, thank you very much for your kindness. I have enjoyed the evening very much. I realize it has cost you a lot of money and I want to help you pay for the meal. <laughs> That'd be an insult, wouldn't it? Is that the proper response to his kindness? On the contrary, it is rude and insulting gesture. So it is the grace of God. Salvation, and that was the end of his quote. Salvation is a gift graciously given and never earned or merited. Never earned or merited. Grace is a gift. If it is not a gift freely given, then by definition, it is not grace. And guess what? Faith is a gift too. Think about it. Hey, question, is faith a good thing? It is. Somebody said amen. Is faith a good thing? Yes. yes it, 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 is faith a righteous thing? It is. How can a dead person muster up living faith? And if it were something a dead person could conjure up in some kind of creepy seance thingy, then did they conjure up enough of this faith? How much faith is enough faith? If it comes from you, if faith derives from my spiritually lifeless soul, then my salvation once again depends on what? On me. It's something I produce from within me, and it's not about God's grace anymore. I remember how this came home to me powerfully many years ago as I was listening to R.C. Sproul. Jennifer did become reformed before me, just I had to make that clarification. She was listening to R.C. Sproul the day before this one. <laughs> yeah, I, I had always thought of the picture of the person in the hospital laying on their deathbed and the doctor offers the life-saving medicine to the person but the person must take the medicine in order to be healed. Or, or I, the better one, even better than that, was the illustration of the person that's drowning in the lake, right? And they're, they're flailing and they're about to drown and someone comes along and they toss the life preserver, but they must grab on to the life preserver in order to be saved, right? I mean, those were really good arguments, I thought. Yet both of these hypothetical situa situations require what? That the person be alive. Right? We were not drowning, folks. We were dead at the bottom of the lake, decaying. How does a dead person at the bottom of the lake grab onto a life preserver? That's not going to happen, is it? No. The person being offered the medicine is in the morgue. How do they respond? They don't. They don't. What must happen is a Savior must come in and pull them from the bottom of the lake, pull them out of the morgue, pull them up and breathe life into them. By grace, that they may live. Salvation is all of the grace of God. Salvation is all of the grace of God. The only thing that anyone contributes to their salvation is their need to be made alive. Life must come from God before the sinner can arise from the grave. It is God's immeasurable grace that drew us to himself, resuscitated us, and then saved us. In both those instances, when the Savior has breathed life into you, is there anything then that you can boast of? Nothing. So that no man may boast. 
You can boast in your Savior and His grace. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of the works done by us in righteousness, (laughs) because we didn't do any, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Paul continues, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, since our salvation is wholly and completely a work of God's grace, it can then be truly said that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. See how that works? He did the work. He did the creating. He fashioned and formed us in Christ through the cross. God took and gave us life and recreated us, not as a result of works, but for good works, that we should walk in good works. Now, Paul mentions good works here, and he goes on through the rest of the book of Ephesians to talk a lot about works, good works, things we should do as Christians. And because we are so works-based as human beings, the temptation is for us to surmise a couple of things here. Number one, that we need to maintain our salvation by our good works, or Number two, that we should assess whether or not we are saved based upon our works. There's a reason I'm looking at you like this. So even though his grace was unconditional before, now that we've laid hold of it, now it is conditional? Do we really think that Paul has turned our focus so much away from ourselves to God only to have him shift back to focusing on ourselves and away from his grace? Are you so foolish? Have you begun by the spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? H.A. Ironside tells the story of an attempted assassination of the first Queen Elizabeth of England. The assassin was discovered hiding in the queen's boudoir, awaiting the opportune moment to stab the queen to death. After her capture, as the guards brought her before the queen for sentencing, the would-be assassin threw herself down on her knees and begged for the queen to have compassion and to show her grace. Well, Queen Elizabeth looked at her and said, If I show you grace, I needed Lynn's accent here. If I show you grace, (laughs) if I show you grace, what promise will you make for the future? The would-be assassin looked up at her and said, grace that hath conditions, grace that is fettered by precautions is not grace at all. And the queen got it. She said, you are right. I pardon you of my grace. And she was led away, a free woman. Grace that has conditions, grace that is fettered by precautions, is not grace at all. You see, when we annex works to God's grace, whether to maintain our salvation or assure ourselves of our salvation, we are in desperate trouble. Because how can we answer the question of how many and how much? How many good works to keep it or to know you have it? How many? How many sins before you lose your salvation? How much humility or kindness or generosity must you have in your heart to be really sure that you're saved? And how honest are you really being in answering any of these questions? 
Let me give you an example from a book that I've been reading. It's called The Hammer of God. I want you to imagine that you are called to comfort a friend in the midst of a crisis of assurance. They're on their deathbed and are examining their works and are despairing of their faith. They express to you their fear that they will not be accepted in heaven because they did not have true faith in Christ because of their works that they are examining. And so you appeal to their works and you say, my dear friend, your life above all others that I have seen demonstrated a love for God and a hatred for the world. You have been a faithful testimony to Christ, faithful to your spouse and your children, loving righteousness and hating evil. And they begin to weep as they look at you. If you only knew my heart, how desperately wicked it has been. If you only saw into my soul the wickedness that abounds moment after moment. For all those times that I have demonstrated love for God, there are a hundred times that many instances that I have not. If you only knew how many times I have chosen the world above God, thousands times more, sin upon sin that no one besides myself and an all-seeing God saw in my heart. The lack of repentance, the lack of love, the putting of idol upon idol in his place to pursue my own pleasures above pursuing him. If you only knew the numerous times that I did not even consider the love of my brothers before I acted and did harm to them because of my thoughtlessness and how very often I have been jealous and angry and selfish and prideful for every time I loved righteousness, there were a hundred that I hated it. For every time that I hated evil, there were a hundred times that, that I loved it first. There is no assurance for me. There is no hope for me. Do you see the problem, folks? The problem of looking to our works instead of grace. If your assurance of salvation comes by your works, then you need to examine all your works in light of a perfectly holy and righteous God. And then you are back under the yoke of legalism under law instead of grace. Well, does this mean that then I can go out and sin all the more? Just whatever, God, I've got grace. I'm going to go and, and willingly sin. <laughs> What's Paul say? God forbid, by no means. Such an attitude despises God's grace rather than walks in it, mocks it rather than trusts it. I dare say that someone who would make such a presumptuous leap probably has no concept of grace whatsoever. So let's put ourselves back in the room of our dying friend who is despairing of their salvation. Instead of you pointing at their works for assurance, you say this, I know you have had much sin in your life, as have I, and I continue to. But God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved you, even when you were in your trespasses made you alive together with Christ. By grace, by grace you have been saved. That is your assurance in who Christ is and what Christ has done for you in God's grace and not in your works. This is so important. This is so important, folks. This is, this is where we, really, we like our doctrine. We're good at our doctrine. But when it comes down to it, this is where we struggle. You need to stand firm in the assurance of but God. 
and the assurance of God's grace. When you fail, but God. When you fall, but God. When unrecognized sin is revealed to you, but God. When you see the rottenness of your heart, but God. When you glimpse your lack of faith, but God. When your feelings of assurance are waning, but God. Stand firm in the assurance, not of your works, but of God and his grace. Stand firm in but God. It is God's grace alone that drew us, that resuscitated us, that saved us, and that preserves us. He preserves us. His grace preserves us. The history books tell us that Queen Elizabeth had no more faithful, devoted servant than that woman who had intended to assassinate her. That's the way the grace of God works in the life of an individual. He or she becomes a faithful servant of the one who has shown them such amazing grace. This too is a vital aspect of his grace. You see, God's grace not only calls us, regenerates us, justifies us, and preserves us, but it also sanctifies us. We are his workmanship, his workmanship, the good works which he prepared beforehand. We do not become perfect, but his grace works in us in such a way that we walk in his grace and do works empowered by his grace. I heard the great illustration of a little boy who was trying to follow in his father's steps through the snow, but he just couldn't manage it. So the father put the boy's feet on his own, his hands under the boy's armpits, and began to stride with the boy through the snow. So it is in the Christian life. So it is with grace. What a picture of the power of his grace and our need to rely upon it. The source of the Christian strength lies not in God's, lies in God's grace, not in the exertions of the will, the efforts of discipline, or any other self-effort. Paul didn't give us all of this magnificent reflection on God's grace simply to have us turn away from it and then try to walk in our own power. You are in grace. How do you, how do we stand firm against everything, against the onslaught of everything coming at us as believers? How do we stand firm? In the assurance of God's grace. Stand firm in the assurance of His grace. I want to return to verse 7 as we conclude. All of this, all of this is so that... In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God calls us by his grace. He regenerates us by his grace. He justifies us by his grace. He sanctifies us by his grace and preserves us by this amazing grace so that we might be satisfied and satiated in his grace, both now and forevermore. So that we would raise our, if I could raise my hand, so we could raise our hands <laughs> and go, woohoo, to the praise of your glorious grace. To the praise of your glorious grace. He saved us by grace so that we will praise his glorious grace forever. We are saved by the grace of God to the God of grace. We are saved by the grace of God to the God of grace. 
the loveliest, the most beautiful, majestic being in all of existence, the one who is the origin and apex of all pleasure, joy, satisfaction, and peace, the quintessence of glory and goodness and hope and delight. This is the God of grace that we have been saved to by this grace. Hallelujah! He and His immeasurable grace are the unending reward of all who have been made alive together with Christ. All because of grace. All because of grace. I end with the words Charles Spurgeon said this, will you stand still a while and contemplate the abundant grace of our blessed God? A river deep and broad lies in front of you. Track it to its fountainhead. See it welling up in the covenant of grace and the eternal purposes of infinite wisdom. The secret source is no small spring, no mere bubbling fountain. It is a very great geyser leaping high in fullness of power. Not even an angel could fathom the springs of eternal love or measure the depths of infinite mercy. Now follow the stream. See how it widens and deepens, how at the foot of the cross it expands into a measureless river. See how the filthy come and wash. Observe how each polluted one comes up pure. Note how the dead are brought to be bathed in the sacred stream and witness how they live the moment they touch its wave. Now we reach the mighty source of love and mercy. No shoreline marks the boundary of that great deep. No voice proclaims its length and breadth. But from its lowest deeps and all along its smooth surface, I hear a voice that says, here is grace. Let us praise His glorious grace. It is so great. It is so great. Let's pray. To the praise of your glorious grace this morning, O oh God. We say to the praise of your glorious grace. Your grace has called us. Your grace has drawn us. Your grace has sustained us. Your grace has saved us. Your grace sanctifies us and justifies us. It is your grace, O oh God, because you are so gracious. Help us to stand in the assurance of your immeasurable grace day by day we would proclaim but God but God in Jesus name Amen